Save big money at Menards. Let the fresh air in and keep the bugs out with replacement screen for your doors and windows from AdForce. It's easy to install, durable against the elements, and comes in a variety of types to suit your needs. Repair your screens today with a roll of replacement screen on sale through May 5th. And check out more great deals happening now in our weekly flyer on Menards.com. Save big money at Menards. And, and it's also the way we live. And it's not just the First Amendment. It's it's how we live. It's how we think of ourselves. Um, it's um, and, and to me, that's critical. And I worry that the culture is changing. And and, and in a way, it becomes like a vicious cycle because if you're somebody on the moderate right and you're being told that you're privileged, then you're going to react a certain way and it might make you more extreme. And, and I think that that's a really bad dynamic because it can also bring out the liberal tendencies on the right as well that are unhealthy. You lose sight of what this country is all about. Let's go. Welcome to Citizen. We've got a very special guest today, author David Bernstein. So uh, we were just looking for your book on on uh, Amazon, and it's kind of hard to find it through search, although I've got the link for it. That seems kind of weird. Yeah, all of a sudden today, I'm looking for my book, as you do when you just came out, come out with a book, and it's not there on the search engine. You can still find it with the link. And I have this sinking feeling that somebody's targeting the book right now and Amazon took it down at a time when it was selling really well. Yeah, you know, they, uh, <clears throat> we, I've had this happen to a friend of mine before and their explanation after the fact was that they just got bombed with reports, people reporting it for whatever reason or another. And you know, it triggers something automatically to take it down. Like, all right, cool, man. But that means people are weaponizing your reporting system. Maybe you should look into that a little bit since you're the largest Absolutely. book retailer on, on earth. Right. Um, yeah, it's very frustrating. So, yeah. Um, tell me, uh, tell me a little bit about yourself. How, how you, how you got started in all this? Yeah. So look, I, I, I'm Jewish. I grew up in um, a middle-class Jewish background in Columbus, Ohio. My mom is from Baghdad, Iraq, and believed America's streets were paved with gold. My grandmother came to live with us from Iraq. So I grew up in this very patriotic American Jewish immigrant household. And, um, you know, my parents today are pretty politically conservative, actually, but I was, I've always been sort of a center left guy and um, and have headed major Jewish advocacy organizations, which you might say have a center left tilt, you know, pushing policies like immigrant rights and criminal justice reform and what have you. Um, but even about 20 years ago, I started to sense that the tide was turning. I started to hear groups that I was working with in other communities, other ethnic communities and the like, starting to talk about America in a very different way. They went from talking about America, which was a great country with its constitution and everything and a commitment to equality, but imperfect and still living up to its own high ideals, to a country which was oppressive in nature. And it always hit me that that was going to be extremely damaging if that idea caught on 
in larger swaths of American society. And I wrote about it, actually. I wrote memos to my colleagues about it, expressing concerns. Um, I wrote op-eds about it. Um, I also thought that if this ideology became dominant, that it was not going to be good news for the Jewish community either. And I could talk about that as we go along. But, um, but you know, so even though I'm a center left guy on policy issues, those are no, a lot of times, a lot of the people that I've known in my entire life I've worked with, I find myself on complete opposite ends now. I mean, my new friends are people who support uh, values of democracy, who support a robust America, who uh, believe in the American dream. Those are my friends, whether they're on the center right or center left. Sure. Yeah. I mean, so, you know, we, we talk about that particular thing on this show quite a bit, which is that if you organize yourself around, um, you know, political parties or, uh, uh, I guess these days it's not even just parties. It's, it's either a, a cause celebrity or, or celebrities in reality, right? Uh, uh, and, and in the case of our last person, a literal reality TV personality, um, that's, that's quicksand. That's a moving, shifting, uh, uh, foundation. And that's not, you know, it just doesn't make any sense to organize your life that way, right? If you organize right. your life around principles, not ideologies, but principles, you know what I mean? Like yes. there, here's, here are things I, I believe in liberty. I believe in this, this, and this, um, <clears throat> you know, now you'll find that you'll, you'll, you'll have a lot more in common with people than you had before. And, and frankly, probably mostly what you have are commonalities between other people because that's the study of human psychology, right? Maslow was able to reduce our, our needs to a, to a very basic hierarchy, and I think it stood the test yes. of time. I couldn't agree more. And you're, I think there's a sorting process that's taking place based on people with principles. You know, I, the people I used to, let's say, the podcast, the people I used to listen to or watch that I didn't always agree with on the right, um, I don't even care what their views are on the policy issues that we used to disagree about. Because to me, the higher order principles and values that I hold dear of, of as you said, of, of liberty, of the free, to, free expression of ideas, which is just central to, how, to who I am and what the country is, those are what binds us. I'm, I'm, those, are my, those are my allies mm -hmm. now. And I don't even ask questions. I don't really care who you voted for anymore. Um, I, I care about are we on the same team fighting for these these transcendent values? Sure, yeah. And, I, you know, to me that seems pretty obvious. Uh, it, honestly, it seems uh, it's like you're a football fan. Like you like the Giants or the Jets. I like the Eagles or the Cowboys or the Redskins. We're all in the NFC well, mostly that if if you just count the giants, it's like yeah, the things that make you similar, the fact that you enjoy football, that's the primary thing that's happening there, right? Now we just select our own teams and play with those, uh, and you know, it, it's I think the competition is good, the the shit talking, you know, it's like it, it's it's some kind of confluence of. Um, putting your foot down, believing in something, setting a standard, but also competing 
with that to see who wins, right? You know what I mean? There's some competition there. And at the end of the day, whatever happens, happens. And then, you know, we all have a good time. Uh, I yeah. think I think that's a – it's it's obvious. The parallel between that and, and politics is obvious. But unfortunately, we took the good and the bad out of that. We took the competition to mean that, like, the goal is to win and not to get the right answer, you know? Right. I think that's right. Um, you know, and I can relate to it as a Arden, Ohio State football fan who was just on a call with a Michigan fan. And, you know, under certain circumstances, we'd be talking shit to each other. Oh, yeah. <laughs> but we were just enjoying the football games that we watched on, on Saturday. Well, I'm a Penn State graduate, so I'm not thrilled, but whatever. <laughs> Man, going to Penn State football game when you're an Ohio State fan is an eye opener because oh, yeah. the amount of like energy in that stadium and the loudness of that stadium. And listen, I've been going to Ohio State games since I was since I was five, mm. but it is just is just really unbelievable. Um, but uh, yeah, I, I think that that's I think that that's right. We've lost sight of of the goals sometimes here, and I think like I would love to see more friendly competition in solving social problems between sort of market-based right-wing views and, you know, progressive government-oriented solutions. Like, bring it on. Like, let's try to make this country live up to its its highest ideals and values. Let's try to lift up as many people as we can, but let's let's figure out how we're going to do it and let's, and and be on the same page. And I feel like that's been lost as well. I think that was ever perfect. Mm. But if you go back to the early 1990s, when I was sort of coming of age, there was just a lot more of that. Like, you know, I didn't, whether Jack Kemp's enterprise zones were going to actually solve the problem of the inner city, I didn't know. But the fact is he had ideas and he was energized by those ideas. And I feel like we're, we're really lacking that today. And it's part of a larger problem in our politics and our society. Um, but I, I, you know, I wrote this book, Woke Anti-Semitism, because I watched my own community, the Jewish community. I'm not I'm not only part of the Jewish community, but it's, you know, it's 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 home. And I watched overnight many institutions become completely captured and captivated by this ideology that told people that they had all the answers. An ideology that told people that what they could discuss and what they couldn't discuss. And it was amazing to me because in Jewish organizational life, especially, you debate everything. Sure, yeah. I mean, I grew up debating, like, I debate, like, you know, whether... um, you know whether the 1953 Cleveland Indians would we, would beat the uh, World Series champ of today, you know, or you know it could be un- untold number of issues, and yet that itself is impossible to do now. You have people telling you that you're doing emotional harm to them by just simply questioning their ideas, and so I saw that happening in the Jewish community. Obviously, I saw it happening in the larger American society, and I, I left my job. I was CEO of an umbrella organization. Uh, in the Jewish world, left my job and started a new venture to try to restore some of that to both the Jewish world and to America, be part of a larger effort to do so. How do you think that went down? I mean, like a, sh- a yeshiva, if if you know anybody that actually went to one of these uh, like Jewish parochial schools, if you want to call it that, you're you're absolutely right. It is like it's like twelve year olds debating forty five year olds about you know two to three thousand year old literature it's very interesting how that works oh, yeah and it's kind of the foundation yeah. of uh what you might call jewish skepticism right and uh which is really a really important part of of the doctrine so how do you think it uh uh does like just completely dissolved 
into this where where they're marrying up with progressive stuff. I don't understand that. Yeah. So so I was uh, when I graduated college, I went to Israel and I studied at a yeshiva. Mm -hmm. You know, it's a yeah, um, seminary. And, you know, I was just this sort of semi-secular American Jew, but I was interested, like, okay, what is this Talmud stuff sure. that everybody's talking about? And we go into this Beit Midrash, and Beit Midrash is like, it's like a library, and people are paired up in what are called kavruta. So you're, you're facing somebody else, and you both have these books open, and they're in Aramaic, and they start teaching you how to dissect the text in Aramaic. And I'm just sitting there with this, you know, this tutor going back and forth a little bit about trying to, meaning, and this dude right next to me stands up and starts screaming Cross the the desk at his friend. I was like, I was just totally taken aback, and I, I didn't actually know what to make of it. Like, is he crazy? What's going on? And and the, my tutor, you know, says, no, it's okay, cool, whatever. Yeah, we keep on talking. Another guy across the across the the room did the exact same thing. Starts screaming, and I realized that that's actually what this is about. It's about it's about engaging in debate in good faith. It's about trying to get to the bottom of what the text was saying. It's a thought process. It teaches you a rigorous thought process that helps you th think critically. And so I brought that with me. I was a philosophy major too, so that didn't hurt. I brought with that with me into life. So I, I it's it's hard for me to tell you why so many people were willing to sacrifice that at the altar of woke ideology. Yeah, it's very bizarre. I because just do not understand it. If you if you're you know I, I'm sure certainly our listeners have heard me say this before or reference this, but the. Uh, you know, the famous poem first they came for the socialists, right? Is is kind of it, it's uh it's a warning that free speech and liberty only exists if it exists for everybody, including the people you disagree with. As soon as you start limiting those rights, then ultimately it becomes a three hundred sixty degree firing squad and they're coming back for your rights at some point, right? And I think that's yeah. uh that's pretty critical and it's happened many, many times. It's one of the, the theses of your book that um, <clears throat> I guess that the treatment of uh, the Jewish community in any given uh, state or country or whatever it is, is almost a, you know, a, a, a coal mine canary. Like if, if people, if some group or organization or the state starts fucking around with the Jews, it's for some reason and a pretty good indicator that things are about to go really bad. Yeah, I think that's right. Jews do well in liberal societies, mm. liberal, small L liberal societies, free societies. We do well in those societies. We do not do well in societies that are coming down on, on various dissident groups and the like. Um, and, um, you know, today we don't have necessarily the government as the as the stifler in chief of freedom of speech. It's it's very often media companies, it's social media, it's individuals, it's it's mobs of people who are self-organized who are coming after people. And it's this incredible impulse to cave to that, uh, that that leads us to having less speech, even if it's more government protected today than it might have been, let's say, 40 or 50 years ago. I think people are self-censoring at rate, record rates, and all the polls show that. We just did a survey ourselves, and it showed that people are People are self-censoring. And by the way, even progressives are self-censoring because they're around other progressives who are telling them what to think and they're walking on eggshells themselves. Yeah, it's manufactured consent, right? I mean, it's a very, uh, it's a psychological phenomenon where you uh, uh, say something loud and long enough and then you apply certain social pressures that people, you no longer have to 
have people under your thumb because they are under their own thumb or under the weight of their own, uh, uh, I don't know, fear of shame or whatever it is. I don't know. Yeah. You know, Greg Lukianoff, who's the CEO mm. of FIRE, it's a sort of uh, campus free speech organization that's now becoming the new ACLU now that ACLU is no longer mm. the old ACLU. Um, they are, Greg likes to say that free speech is not just the First Amendment, it's a culture. It's embedded in the American ethos, like with statements like to each his own and everybody has their own opinion and all the things that we've told ourselves over the years that make us a free country. And so what we're seeing is not necessarily the government turning, but the culture turning and becoming much more stifling. And I think that's a huge problem. And we have to push back against that. Yeah, I mean, it's. Uh, I, I wonder what it is that's causing this. I mean, certainly we've over the last several decades lost any kind of tolerance for discomfort. I believe it started with physical discomfort and it's kind of, uh, you know, evolved into a. a I don't know. We don't, we don't want to feel any discomfort at all. It's led to, um, you know, us not being connected with nature anymore. It's led to an opioid crisis. It's led to, uh, now these, uh, just constant hurt feelings and victim mentality where people feel yeah. like they have a right not to be injured, which is a weird right. thing to believe. You know what I mean? Based on the entirety of human history, that's kind of a weird thing to believe. Right. I don't even go further and say that we're conditioning people to lean into their anxiety. Mm. Um, and and so people are saying, well, OK, my anxiety about X means that uh, should be elevated into sort of a new social norm. Um, and, be, and because I'm now the weakest member of society or the tribe and you should protect me against feeling harm. And that's another ancillary aspect of this is this sort of harm-based morality. I don't know if you've come across this, but it's this idea that certain groups, protected groups, marginalized communities um, are very uh, vulnerable. And, um, and so therefore we have to uh, do everything we can to make sure that they don't feel that vulnerability. And if they do feel it, we're are causing harm and that in and of itself however they feel harm for whatever reason is enough for us to change our own speech they have a permanent demand to uh to change our speech and i think first of all i think that's a t terrible for a marginalized community i mean you know you're trying to build resilience in the face of opposition you're not trying to you're not you're, you don't want to you don't want to make yourself out to be weak you um and that's why i i have a lot of friends in sort of the black heterodox world people like the folks at free black thought mm. um and the like and they, they're scared that their kids are going to be taught that the system's rigged against them mm. and even if the system is rigged against them or partially rigged against them you still don't want your kids going around thinking that they have no agency no that just I think that just produces that just produces nihilism right i mean you're you're never going to get any kind of if somebody believes they have no shot then they ultimately become nihilistic and and it, that manifests itself in a number of different ways but you know, you, you mentioned Greg Lukanoff uh, and calling of the American mind. What did they say? Uh, prepare the, your uh, children for the road, not the road for your children. I think that's a pretty smart thing that's, to think. I think that's right. And uh, that's a really important book. And I, I was exposed to this idea of harm. I had a um, I have a, a my, my now senior in high school was in eighth grade. And um, it turned out that he had taken a picture with another kid with a plastic airsoft gun at his head 
Um, and he sent it to eight friends in his, uh, his school on like Snapchat. And um, he, I got a call from the principal that he had been suspended the last three and a half weeks of eighth grade. Um, and I, I, and I, was, I was shocked. I mean, like, okay, maybe he shouldn't have done that. It was, by the way, it wasn't in school. It was in the basement of my house mm-hmm. that he took this, this picture. So I went in to meet with the principal and I said, I, I don't understand this punishment. I mean, you're, the kids, you know, three and a half weeks. And, uh, they said, and they said, well, it was the harm, not the intent. And there were a lot of kids with anxiety who were felt very anxious at seeing that picture. And I thought, I was like, what? What do you mean it's not the intent? He, he's, this kid couldn't hurt a fly. Like, why would you say that, that it's not the intent? You know, everybody who knows him knows that he wouldn't hurt a fly. And, um, and they insisted that, um, that it caused all this anxiety. And, you know, I thought to myself, and I wrote about this in the Washington Post, actually, at the time, I was outraged, um, that that's exactly the problem, that, um, that, you know, we're conditioning kids with anxiety to think that if they're anxious at all, they, should, they, they have a claim against other people and that mm-hmm. that should shut down discourse. Sure. And you know what? It, I mean, there, there's obvious things that that spring forth from that one is, like you said, just a, a general lack of resilience. Um, uh, I got yeah. some bad news for you folks. Life is tough and right. it ain't getting any easier, man. I mean, the, the weight doesn't get lighter. You get stronger. That's how this whole life works. Um, yeah. But there's also this. There's only so it, it's a bandwidth issue at this point. There's only so much attention we can pay. Uh, you know, and maybe this sounds cruel, but there's only so much attention we can pay to uh, people being harmed, right? And if we're if we're lumping in people whose feelings were hurt and to people who have literally been harmed, now the people who've literally been harmed are not being taken care of in the way they're supposed to, right? I think that's right. And and you can imagine what that would do in like the criminal justice system, and it's already doing. I mean, you're the people who have actually done harm with the intent to do harm and people who have been harmed by them might be let off the hook and people who have done really nothing wrong other than violate somebody's sensibilities or whatever. You saw this, by the way, at the New York Times when the science reporter Don McNeil was let go. Um, at first, um, he was actually partially exonerated. They sort of slapped him on the, the wrist and said he didn't really mean to do anything wrong. And a group of young, mostly young, I believe, staffers at the New York Times wrote a petition. I think there were about 150 signatories saying that they learned in their harassment training that the New York Times put on for them that it's the harm, not the intent that matters. And that they felt harmed by what he had said. So therefore, they should, New York Times should live up to the, its own harassment training and um, and you know, deal with Don McNeil, which they did, and they fired him at that point, or he has asked to resign. I don't know exactly what happened, but I know that he wasn't allowed to stay on as a reporter. So I think that that's caught on and and it's been internalized by people. So if you're asking, like, why did we, how did we get here? I think that's one reason we've got there is people are scared of violating the, the feelings and sensibilities of specific groups. There's a phenomenon a guy named Matt Bruneg talks about called identitarian deference. Where you say, okay, we uh, as as a white person, I don't have the qualification to uh, to articulate my own view on race and racism. So I'm going to find other people in my organization. We're going to be very, by the way, carefully curated. It's not like all black people agree with each other. I mean, I think some. I, I saw a poll recently that 62% of black people disagree with affirmative action in higher education. Mm. 
I mean, just think about what that means for how diverse that community actually is, or how many Latinos don't adhere to this. And do you think Latinx is a ridiculous term? So they're carefully curating these people who adhere to this, the party line, and they're putting them in charge. And once you do that, once you sign on the dotted line of deference, it's almost impossible to get yourself out of it. So even if the political winds change around this, and I think they are um, changing somewhat, mm -hmm. um, I think it's very hard for institutions who have sort of dug in to dig out. Yeah, and you uh, you make the point in your book that it's this is uh, one of the primary causes of modern divisiveness and then racial essentialism, which is, I mean, it's really not even... <clears throat> So, so we monolith a group based on our preconceived ideas of what should be right or what the political Wednesday should be right. And then we select people who agree with that, who happen to be the right race, and then use them as what, a fucking puppet? I mean, what, what's really going on there? Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a fucking puppet in many ways. And I've, I've heard this directly from people that, in, in, especially right in the wake of the George Floyd killing, a lot of organizations you know, said, okay, now we've got to do something. And maybe the CEO that sort of was dragging his or her feet on this decided, okay, I'm going to move on this. And, and they started deferring and deferring and deferring. And they made all these commitments. And now, you know, the racial audit that was started three months after George Floyd has sort of come out with this report, right? And and so all these organizations now are sort of are, are digging in on this. Um, yeah, and I think it's it should be offensive, and it is offensive for a lot of minorities that don't adhere to the party line here. Um, you know, th that's not what they believe, and you hear this from them. Um, you know, there was, a, there was an NFL coach, I'm just blanking on one of the, I think one of the two uh, African-American NFL coaches who was asked by a reporter, like, what, you know, you're going against the other black coach in the league. What do you think of that? And he goes, I don't know. He's just He's just a coach. He's my friend. I've got a lot of friends with the white coaches as well. Um, you know, I don't even think about that. Why are you imposing that on me? You know, that is so common mm. and it's ridiculously common. And uh, and yet that's not what's happening in the corporate world and the nonprofit yeah. world and the arts and everywhere else. Now, we, we've done that to women for years as well. Just like if there's two women involved in something you're like, oh, have you met Brenda yet? What do you guys get along? Like, who cares, man? Uh, it, it's it's like a very sophisticated form of sophisticated and wide umbrella form of gaslighting where the media pretends all of a group believes the same thing, then parades people who espouse that ideology around and they keep pushing it regardless of how ridiculous and, and disprovable that ideology is until other groups uh, feel some kind of resentment towards them. You know what I mean? It's absolutely like this. This is it's built in. Yeah, it's very clearly designed to create racial division. And you yeah. have to ask yourself why, like a qui bono, right? Who benefits from this? And it certainly is not yeah. us. It's not us. You know, there's a there's a woman who's been involved with my organization. There's been a few articles about her. Her name is Nicole Levitt. She is a lawyer for a domestic violence and abuse organization in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Um, she was asked in the course of their DEI discussions at work, to uh, join a white affinity group, and then once there to sign a contract that all white people are racist and I'm no exception. And she didn't want to do it. And um, then they brought her into the DEI coordinator for a struggle session that she was obliged to have where they could try to convince her that she was actually crazy for not going along with the party line. So, you know, and, and by the way, there's so this happens so often. The problem is 
we just don't hear about a lot of them because most people just cave in those conditions. But I think in certain sectors, this is happening all the time. And it's it's terrible for race relations. It does mm. nothing to make people more sensitive to each other, to work better together as a team. It doesn't it doesn't create great company culture. It no. does the opposite about that. It tears at the seams of company culture. Yeah, for sure. I mean, the best way to get people to get along is to put them together because it's hard to hate up close. It, it's extremely right. it's extremely difficult to hate people up close. It's extremely difficult to uh, 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 sit around why people around you are not doing well and not do something about it. People have a natural communal in inclination to help other people. So all you really need to do, and it, certainly this is to some degree reductive, but <clears throat> the, the real solution for this is to put all these people in the same place, right? To have them talking to each other without a middleman involved. Because right. look, look, at, look at some of the, uh, like we, we've <laughs> in the past on sports teams and stuff, uh, a black dude would, would join a sports team, the first black guy on that sports team, and all the white dudes became friends with him. Well, how could that possibly happen? They hate each other. No, they don't. It's just not yeah. true that that's, that's the reality. The reality is that when people are uh, close in close quarters with each other or work together or live near each other, they either get along or they don't. And for the vast majority of people, they get along. That's just how life works. That's how it's always worked. Right. Yeah, and I think that some of this is really designed to pull people apart. It's hard to know why. You know, even the whole focus on microaggressions or, you know, little statements you're not supposed to say, you know, ask people where they're from because they might look like they're from a different ethnicity than you. Just that's all designed to shut down discourse. It's all designed to sort of empower a single narrative and to shut down everybody else from talking. You know, and part of it I realized is it's like it's deeply nihilistic um, in a way. It's 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 like. It's almost, there's not, nothing that comes afterward at all. So I remember, give you a good example from the Jewish community. We've been doing black Jewish relations for a long time. Mm. And it's always been a both rewarding and painful aspect of our work. And um, I was told by somebody, a uh, highly woke person, that I should stop using the term black Jewish relations. I said, why? He goes, because people can be both black and Jewish. Those are not mutually exclusive. And I said, so what? Like, why should I stop? And they were very insistent. No, you should stop. I said, so what should we call it? Um, and they said, that's for you to figure out. And what I realized is that, and I've heard that over and over, mm. by the way, it's for you to figure it out. It's like, you know, we're just telling you to stop harming, but we're not going to give you any sense of what should be done next because that's emotional labor. That's that, that we don't want to exert for ourselves or we shouldn't have to be expected to exert. So, what you end up with is sort of this kind of nihilistic condition that sets in in your organization or your community. You don't want to say talk. You know, you can't talk about black Jewish relations, so you can't do black Jewish relations. And if you can't do black Jewish relations, then you're no longer fulfilling the mission of your organization, which was set up, among other things, to do black Jewish relations. And then you become disempowered in that process. And that, and I, I kind, of, I kept the sense it wasn't about the terms I was using. It was about me being perceived, even though I'm 50%, you know, Middle Eastern, it was about me being a white guy in, in charge and, and causing sort of like creating a Tower of Babel in, that makes it so I can no longer, or people like me can no longer lead. This episode is brought to you by Black Rifle Coffee. You get 20% off your first order using the code CITIZEN. Join the Black Rifle Coffee Club and get fresh roasted freedom delivered straight to your door. Black Rifle Coffee Company is a veteran-operated company that supports America's military, law enforcement, and first responders. 
I drink it every morning. It's part of my routine now. Uh, I use the Chemex, um, grind up my coffee, use the Chemex, make a nice little cup, drink it with breakfast, get my day started right. Uh, you know, the the best thing other than just the flavor because the coffee is really good is the convenience. So you're going to get premium coffee delivered every month as you see fit. Choose your favorite roast, whether you like light, dark, or medium. Uh, choose the grind, whether you want ground coffee or you want whole bean to grind yourself, or if you want coffee rounds, which fit in the Keurig, and uh, your delivery schedule every week, bi-weekly, monthly, whatever you want. Members also get free shipping and access to exclusive partner discounts. Get 20% off your first order with the code CITIZEN. Go to BlackRifleCoffee.com. Use the code CITIZEN to get 20% off your first order. Oh, boy. Next up is Ghost Bed. You know it. I love these beds so much. I can't tell you. Uh, when I'm on the road and we travel a lot, just having to sleep in an inferior bed drives me crazy. Uh, and as a lot of you know, I travel with my ghost pillow now, which seems, I don't know, bougie, maybe needy, maybe a little weird, but I can't sleep without it. Uh, luckily, they're the best in the world, and they're not that expensive. So right now, GhostBed is offering 40% off their bundle package, where you get a mattress and an adjustable base. So if you're looking to buy an entire bedroom suite, this is the way to go, because everything else you add to that order of, uh, of a mattress and an adjustable base will also be 40% off. If you're just looking for little things, onesie, twosie, if you just need a mattress or you just need an adjustable base or you need pillows, sheets, whatever, 30% off everything else if you use the code DRINKINGBROS at ghostbed.com forward slash DRINKINGBROS. You can buy a mattress for like 35 bucks a month. Uh, if you use their zero down, 0% financing plan, which extends up to 60 months, six, zero, five years. Go check it out. Ghostbed.com forward slash DRINKINGBROS. Yeah, and you know, that's the first, so... One of the things, uh, you know, we've seen from Russia over the past, I guess, let's see, what year is this? The past 80 years or so, and, and part of their, uh, you know, uh, information operation technique is, is you don't necessarily have to stop any kind of behavior or even push any other kind of behavior. What you really need to do is shape the narrative, because based on what they're allowed to talk about, people believe that that's what they're allowed to believe and what they're allowed to act on, right? And it's... It is tr probably the best way <clears throat> to control things upstream without without a heavy footprint. And, uh, you know, uh, the conspiracy theorists who say that Russia is deeply involved in the in the disillusion of American culture, maybe they're right about it. Maybe we just did it to ourselves. It's hard to say. But either way, it's that's what's happening. Yeah. The, the great Soviet refusenik, Natan Sharansky, wrote the forward of my book and talk about discomfort. This guy was in the gulag for nine years um, in the Soviet Union, was subject to all kinds of torture, was in solitary confinement for months where he, he got by by playing games of chess in his own head. Mm -hmm. um, and um, and, you know, he would talk, tell you how people live lives of what he called double think. And um, that was like you believe one thing and maybe you express it in the whispers of your own home or your really, really closest friends. And you acted like you believe something different. And I realized when I was sort of in like this woke phase for, for a couple of years, I was living a life of double think. I mean, it was driving me crazy. It got so bad that I, I started writing opinion pieces in a pseudonym just so I could 
express myself, and uh, which is ridiculous, of course. I mean, why should anybody write it, have to do that? But it got just, you know, and I think that that's what we're cultivating in our society. Something, I mean, it's not Soviet Union. America's not Soviet Union. We should be upfront about that. Like, mm. you know, America's still an incredible free country. But, you know, we're trying to watch out about the dangers on the horizon. That's a danger on the horizon that we're becoming more like them. And whenever you talk to a Russian Jew or a Persian Jew or Iraqi Jew like my mom, they when they hear this ideology, they... The, the alarm bells go off in, immediately because it sounds to them like the country they fled to mm. is off, sounding an awful like the country they fled from. And um, and that scares them. So I have lots of Jews from the former Soviet Union who are joining in these kind of efforts. And they're very, very concerned because it really uh, traumatized them. And I, I tell the Jewish community um, that, you know, we've, we've become extra sensitive about what are called Jews of color, Jews, black Jews, Asian Jews, Latino Jews. And, and OK, maybe we should have become we become more sensitive about inclusion in our own community. But we're doing so at the price of this ideology, which is actually alienating the one million or so Jews from the former Soviet Union who, who come into the doors of a Jewish institution and feel like they're hearing Soviet propaganda. Right. Yeah. And uh, yeah, I want to I want to pivot now into since we're on the topic into some of the principles from the show that you you enjoyed. One is I'll support and defend liberty against all enemies, foreign and domestic. I mean, you, you could you expand on why that one popped off the page to you? Yeah, I mean that's what it means to be an American, in my view. It is this unwavering commitment to liberty. And I know we define it a little differently. Some people define it more in sort of the market economy. I mean, I'm I'm a capitalist, but you know, um, but some people, you know, it, you know, if you're a libertarian, it, that's a core aspect of it. Is. Um, some of it is in the way we project ourselves in the on the global scene. We're champions of liberty for other countries where people are oppressed, like in Iran or China. Um, and, and it's also the way we live. And it's not just the First Amendment. It's it's how we live. It's how we think of ourselves. Um, it's um, and, and to me, that's critical. And I worry that the culture is changing. And it, and, and it, in a way, it becomes like a vicious cycle, because if you're somebody on the moderate right, and you're being told that you're privileged, then you're going to react a certain way. And it might make you more extreme. Mm -hmm. And, and I think that that's a really bad dynamic because it can also bring out illiberal tendencies on the right as well that are unhealthy, that lose sight of what this country is all about. And, and that's the, the, the vicious cycle I worry that we're in right now. But to me, I've never stopped believing in liberty. You know, um, Andrew Sullivan, the writer, thinker, says, you know, I haven't changed. Have you? Yeah. And that's what I keep on saying to people. I haven't changed. Maybe you have. Yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, you know. I think our greatest export is uh, liberty, and I, but I don't, you know, I, I think that the neocon groups have gone a little far with that, with a literal export of of liberty, and you can't; it just doesn't work. Like, there's no, um, you can free somebody, but you can't give them liberty because liberty starts inside of you, right? It's, it's, it is right. as you said, just unwavering. Uh, this unwavering belief that my life is my own and that you can only truly believe that if you believe it is also true for other people. Right. So the, right. You, you do feel compelled to guide others towards Liberty and maybe assist them in that, in that fight in the same way that 
I don't know, Lafayette did during the American Revolution, for example, right? He wasn't American. He was a French guy. Um, it, there's plenty of – and just like, you know, a lot of the people who have left the United States to go fight uh, uh, with the Peshmerga and, and Syria and Libya and shit like that and even Iraq. Yeah. I mean, it's – like there are some people who – uh, there, there are quite a few people who believe this to their very core, and that to me is the greatest export: is is demonstrating that belief. Not necessarily yeah. you don't you don't have to fight. I mean, I I chose to fight because I could. A lot of people do, but it's not just about guns and bombs and shit like that. It's about how you live your life, like as you said. You know what I mean? Yeah, you know, in the lead up to the two thousand three war in Iraq, my mother, you know, is Iraqi. You know, grew up in Baghdad, came here in her twenties studied at the University of Baghdad, um, we were talking about some of the architects of the war who were promising democracy in, in Iraq and in the Arab world and how this was really going to be like a domino effect. And my mom says, well, my mom was very supportive of the war. At that time, I, I was very supportive of the war as well. Uh, but she says, if they think that they're doing this because democracy is going to come for Iraq, I've got, they've got another thing coming to mm -hmm. them. And, uh, you know, because she knows it's, it's not... Uh, part of, of the culture. Now, that doesn't mean that there aren't growing numbers of people who desperately want democracy um, in, in Iraq, but it's very easy to think that, to, to hone in on those people and think that everybody wants it. And I remember during the Arab Spring in, was it, 2012, mm -hmm. when we saw, you know, the, out, uh, the, the outpour of democratic fervor among Egyptians in Tahrir Square and the like, um, you would hear people interviewed saying, well, you know, Islam is the answer. Mm. And you realize like that was just a subset of a much larger society, which, you know, doesn't deeply believe in democracy. I have to say, even among Iraqi Jews, we're probably way more westernized than their fellow countrymen. You can still see like a lot of my relatives who came here when they were teens or early 20s or whatever. They didn't completely understand what made a democracy tick. I mean, there's some hilarious examples of that, like my mom, like saying, well, if those Somali cab drivers aren't going to drive people to the airport because they went out or to the alcohol place, maybe they should just be deported. Like, mom, you can't just really deport people because of that, you know. Um, and so but, but still, they these are people who who knew the difference between democracy and totalitarianism. Yeah, in their I mean, bones because th their lives were so different than they were here. Sure, yeah. It's like one of the things that the West never really understood about the Middle East and still doesn't really is that uh, their idea of, of liberty has been shaped quite a bit differently than ours has. You know what I mean? Like there's, th there's a lot of space between totalitarian dictatorship and full-on democracy, obviously. Yes, um, there is. And, you know, there. They're, they're, so from, from, our per, from our purview – Historically, the uh, there has been some religious element to the to the and, and cultural element to the oppression that's occurred over the years, but primarily it's just been greedy rich people. You know what I mean? In the West, it wasn't just based on who you were as a person. You know what I mean? Or who, what community you were in? It was. There's a lot of different elements, especially over the last couple of hundred years. Um, Black culture has been fucked with quite a bit. Irish and Italian culture in America has been fucked with quite a bit. Uh, Jewish culture as well. But the, the modern idea of liberty in the West is the idea that I just want to be able to do what I want to do. And then from the you know, Middle Eastern perspective, it's like there's, 
<laughs> uh, America hasn't been conquered very often, but right. Constantinople has, right? You know what I mean? And, and, and Egypt has, and, and Jerusalem has. I mean, it's like the, their idea of an external oppressive force is completely centered not just on evil or greed or conquest or any of that stuff, but literally about who they are as people. So if they're just allowed to be who they are as people, more or less, not going to bitch too much about if somebody is in charge of other stuff. You know what I mean? If it's a, if it's a dictatorship, if you want to call it that, right. then I think they're a lot more comfortable with that than we would be. Yeah, I think so. I think the kind of thing that we'd be willing to pick up you know, arms with on our own government, if it became like a tyranny, mm. are things that a lot of other people probably would be willing to live with. And... Um, and so I think that uh, that that that's lost upon people here, by the way, as well. Like, you know, there's no comparative framework at all when they talk about what's not right about America or, or America's imperfections and warts. I mean, we should be able to, you know, and they'll say, oh, well, if you're, you're engaging whataboutism when you compare the problems in the United States with everywhere else. I'm like, no, what that does is it allows me to know what's possible in the here and now too it guards against utopianism mm. if you don't if you don't compare what we have in the united states how great it is how incredible it is how worth preserving it is it, it, that guard and, and you're you're able to see that when you've traveled somewhere else when you've uh, been with other people who don't have that same culture that same form of government you, that that helps us remind us why we care so much about liberty why what it means to protect liberty so that to me is a transcendent value of mine. Yeah, same. And I, it's you know people that haven't spent time, uh, particularly I would say in the Middle East, it's probably more common than anywhere else on Earth. To be honest, just the you know because it's you know and it's in the middle, and people have been fighting over it for thousands of years now. Um, the one of the other principles that you uh, selected here was. Um, I will not sacrifice liberty for security. And you wrote some notes in here. I, I would, I want to add to that at some point <clears throat> um, that we've not just sacrificed liberty for security, but we've sacrificed liberty for convenience as well. So it, it's, it's worse than just security. Like it's not just our fear right. that we're using at this point. It's our laziness as well. Uh, at any, any rate, yeah. you, you say you lived this out on a personal level because of some of the organizations you work for. Can you explain that? Well, you know, I've um, I've been, as I was saying before, in the Jewish advocacy realm most of my life. I've been in pro-Israel advocacy, um, and it's always been about in the center left somewhere, uh, mostly. Um, and um, and so I would be I could be involved at any given time with some pro-Israel initiative, but also or U.S.-Israel relations initiative, but also involved in an issue like immigrant rights or criminal justice reform. And on taking an issue like criminal justice reform, uh, you know, I wasn't necessarily a radical about it. I just thought that we shouldn't be jailing people on low level drug charges. Mm -hmm. And and if that was swelling up the number of people in jail because they had like, you know, two ounces of weed on them. I mean, that's not a good thing. We should change. And um, and so I would advocate for this. At some point, I realized that the people in the coalition I, I was with were no longer just advocating for these issues. They were they were applying ideological litmus tests. And one time I was at this coalition meeting and point blank I asked, um, do I have to believe America is a white supremacist country in order to be part of this coalitional effort? And to my shock, literally everyone in the group said, yeah, you do. 
you know, and it was no longer about the issue anymore. So that's what I saw close and personal. And then, you know, it, it'd be easy to go along. I mean, for some people, it is easy to go along. Let's face it, like they don't have a deep commitment to any sense of principle. So they don't feel the least bit put upon if they're asked to go against these very weak principles. Or someone like me, like that, that I, I cannot not advocate for my authentic view. Mm. I, I can't pretend to support something that I don't support or for very long, at least. I mean, everybody's got to act a little bit in the workplace, right? We can't be, we can't say exactly what's on our mind at every given time, but, but, you know, in the, in the thrust of things, that's impossible for me to do. Uh, I, I'm, you're not going to, I'm not going to sit there and say America is a white supremacist country. Mm. Um, I'm just not going to do that. And that was all around me. People are saying you got, we should acknowledge our complicity in white supremacy. No, I'm not going to do that. Um, you know, in um, in 2016, um, I was invited to go to this meeting that some uh, black Jews put together around with Black Lives Matter. We were going to try to get to know what this nascent movement was that all had all this energy in American politics. And I was very curious about it. And um, we were sort of asked not to speak, but just to listen which is a sort of a warning sign in of itself. Like, mm -hmm. why I can't talk to people? That's a struggle session, then, basically. That's a struggle session, right. And I didn't know enough then. I mean, I, you know, it was it was still too new to get the, sort of the pattern in my mm -hmm. mind. And then the people would say, like, you have to shed your whiteness and your complicit white supremacy. I was just, I was dumbfounded. And I realized it was sort of almost like a religious revi revival as well. Like, there was a prayer circle and people preached being woke and what that meant. And, and, um, and so I was really taken aback. And I realized that a lot of the people around me, while they might have been initially taken aback, they adjusted to it really quickly. And that's what scared me. Yeah, that is kind of weird. I mean, you know, it, it used to be the case that uh, the, the broader Jewish community in America was pretty center. I would say center left, maybe uh, uh, a little conservative on, on finance stuff. Right, uh, free market capital and things like that. Probably foreign policy too. Yeah. Also, most mostly foreign policy as well. Uh, yeah, I would say in foreign policy as well. Yeah, um, I, I wonder from your perspective then, uh, and maybe this is a little bit off topic, but I'm just curious. Well, what do you think? What do you think Israel and the Israeli government? What responsibility do they have to the actual people of Palestine? Right, because people will say like. One, uh, 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 the government aren't the people, right? But that doesn't mean that the government funding terrorism isn't happening. You know what I mean? You still have to deal with that threat. And people, I mean, it, this, is yeah. a, this is a difficult conversation to have. But I wonder from your perspective, what, what do you think so, the responsibility there is? Yeah. Yeah. So listen, you know, being a Palestinian in the West Bank is not an easy life. Mm. Even a well-meaning you know person who just wants to go to work it's hard you know you're there are there are checkpoints um there are other really horrific inconveniences um and if you're an activist and you you know you're pushing for your own country or whatever you're doing you know you can face some pretty uh brutal pushback that said it is not an easy choice for Israel to just summarily pick up and leave the West Bank. The Palestinian leadership has not made that easy. They, they, every time they had an opportunity to cut a deal, um, they missed it. As I think Abba Ibn, one of the great Israeli diplomat, once said, Palestinians never um, miss an opportunity to miss an opportunity. And so we've seen that 
over the years, uh, you know, even before Camp David, and there have been several opportunities since then to cut a two-state solution. Um, and and if you look, if I look now, I mean, if you go to, I'm I'm going to Israel tomorrow, by the mm. way, okay. And um, I've lived in Jerusalem, and you know, I know where a fence would be built between East and West Jerusalem. It's like right through the city, mm. and and you can and you can imagine either being on one side or other of that, and worrying that the people who are now in the close quarters of Jerusalem could lob a rocket mm. or whatever. I mean, you know, and I understand why an Israeli government would say this is just not doable right now. Sure. Um, so, you know, I do think Israel has an obligation to make life as easy as they possibly can. But but, you know, they can't easily stop occupying this other people. I mean, building a wall because- through the center of Jerusalem is a fucking stupid idea. We've we've done that in the last 50 years in, in Berlin, and it was stupid then and it's stupid now. Like it, right. it, it doesn't that that does not solve anything at all. Right. Uh, right. So there is a there was a security barrier that was very controversial, a security fence or a wall, depending on what you want to call it, that Israel built on the Green Line mm-hmm. um, in the last fifteen years. The Green Line is the where it was the, the line where they stopped fighting um, in the nineteen sixty seven, and um, and and that line that that it's it's a, it's a wall, it's a concrete wall mm-hmm. in some places, but it's mostly a fence, and that has actually stopped. The Hamas terrorism, mm-hmm. by and large, I mean, you don't see nearly, I mean, 2002 it was scary. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I go there and, you know, you didn't know when the next cafe was going to be blown up. Right. Um, so, yeah, there were, they were like uh, the city buses were getting bombed all the time by suicide yeah. bombers and shit. It's pretty common back then. Yeah, it was common. It's less common now. And if you're the average Israeli, you're like, and, and you just saw the Palestinians reject the peace deal that was much more generous than you ever thought they'd ever you ever extend to them and now you've got relative tranquility relative peace you're saying i I don't want to deal with that anymore Mm -hmm. i just want to go to work keep those people away from me don't make it so that they can bomb me don't make it so they can shoot rockets in my town that's what i want for my government and that's what most israelis are doing now but that sounds a lot like the 97 crime bill right where we locked a bunch of people up for drug related offenses because we thought downstream that would turn into violent offenses right i mean ultimately at some point, once the violent in, violence ends or is, is mitigated to some degree, they, you have to get back involved in trying to s- actually solve the problem, right? I think that's right. And I think a lot of Israelis have sort of deluded themselves that they can remain in these circumstances forever. And then, uh, you know, every few months something happens. There's maybe a stabbing mm. spree. Maybe Hamas uh, can't pay its civic service and starts to use that as a way to change the status quo. So it starts shooting rockets from Gaza. I mean, it can be one of many things that that disrupt that period of tranquility. And I don't think that there's any way, easily way out of that. And so, you know, what I want from the Israelis is not to make things worse. Like, don't build settlements in areas that make it impossible to give away in a future peace deal. We don't know when the situation is going to change. Mm-hmm. You know, um, if you're going to build build in areas that you know you're going to keep, mm-hmm. um, and there are whole blocks of people, they, most, the vast majority of settlers live in like this area around Jerusalem. It's called the Bush Gush Block. <laughs> And um, and, you know, OK, like that's not going to go. That's not going to be returned to Palestinians under any state. There's like several hundred thousand people who live there. It's just right. not going to happen. So build there, but don't build in the middle of these outlying places and things, you know. And again, there's not that much building, but even over over many, many years, even if you allow a trickle, it can add up. 
And so, you know, those are the kind of things. But, um, you know, one of the things I'm going to Israel to talk about actually is is, is wokeness, mm -hmm. because for, they're looking at this as a potential national security issue. You know, all, if America lacks the internal resolve, if we cease to be patriots in this country, we cease to love our country, that affects the way we project power in the world. Yeah, sure. And empathy and that ultimately all of our allies. A hundred percent. And empathy ultimately has to be balanced with personal responsibility, right? I mean, if if uh, our border situation is a pretty good example of that. Like, yeah, we we understand that shit sucks in Guatemala and Venezuela. I I agree, but you know, having a completely open border is just not a solution to that. Now, I'm not a huge yeah. fan of a wall either because I think it's a huge expense. And uh, uh, it doesn't actually stop anything. I mean, you can find right. videos of dudes tunneling or jacking the wall up with, with pneumatic jacks all over the place. Like it, it's it's maybe it's one part in a greater defense plan, but <clears throat> it's not a solution in itself. You know what I mean? It, it's there are parts you can't build a wall. And I, I went to on a border mission to the Mexican border. Mm -hmm. Um, in Arizona, and we were taken around, and there were these there's areas like mountains that are hard to tra traverse, but mm. probably not, you know, impossible. And yet, you cannot build a wall in those places. You said it's not possible. So I I think that it's yeah, that's a complicated situation. I think we have this tendency to want to reduce these very complex situations into like okay, you know, build the wall and it's going to all be okay. Mm. I mean, there's a lot, and I agree with you. You can't allow open borders if, if for no other reason. By the way, it will completely throw our politics into a tailspin, as we've seen. You know, it, it people are, um, you know, and I just don't think that that's in anybody's interest to have. You know, people feel like there's an invasion, even if there's not an invasion. To, to view that happening. It's just not good politics, and um, and we need to get the border situation under control. Yeah, and I think some of this is a, a result of this idea of equity, and ultimately the the DEI nonsense, uh, diversity, equity, and inclusion. It really is just a means to call into question any power that the powerful might have, right? But. It, there's no actual substance to it. You know what I mean? So it's like whoever's on top, that's now the enemy. Well, that's what right. are we playing fucking Game of Thrones here? That doesn't make any sense, man. Uh, you, you're stuck. Right, that's what it is. You're stuck in a cycle now where whoever's on top is the target. We got to take that group out and then replace them with some marginalized group until they become too powerful. Then we got to do it all over again. That is not any right. kind of way to run a society. Right. Power is conflated. Uh, morality is conflated with power, mm. you know, at that point. And, you know, by the way, that's one of the sources of anti-Jewish or anti-Asian sentiment mm -hmm. or anti-white sentiment, for that matter, from equity. If, if as Kendi argues, Ibram X. Kendi argues in How to Be an Anti-Racist, if the only reason why some groups are beneath the mean, whether it's in household income or educational achievement, is because of discrimination and oppression, that that means that all groups that are above the mean are achieving their success on the backs mm -hmm. of the groups that are being subjugated. And that's not a prescription um, for, you know, a peaceful society. And it's also, it is a prescription for resentment, mass resentment. And, um, and we, I worry about that a lot. And I'm already seeing this play out. And like, you know, some of this is, it's, it's sort of equities in its early stages. I mean, you have now institutions that are starting to implement their equity plans. And I think as this sets in and people start to get hurt by it, it's going to cause the mother of all backlashes. Um, by people who are like, what are you telling me that I, I can't have a job here anymore? You just fired me mm. because of that? Um, that's happening. I mean, I, I know somebody on a personal level 
whose company went through an equity sweep and he had glowing reviews and it was just laid off during that that sweep um, because they were trying to make more room for diversity or whatever. And um, again, I understand trying to diversify over time. I mean, you know, we, we should have diverse workplaces, but but to, but equity is no way to do it. Um, and that, it's also going to run up against the law at some point as well, I'm convinced. Well, there's, uh, yeah, I believe there's a, uh, uh, an affirmative action in college universities thing going to the Supreme Court this cycle. So we'll see how that turns out. I mean, you know, one of the things um, that the founders of the country wrote about was divisiveness and, um, you know, just the way that they articulated liberty was... You know, they borrowed a lot from the French, I guess, but it was uh, it was it was something new, right? To to organize your government around it. Now we understand that um, the stuff that they added on the back end, you know, like you can say all people deserve, or all I'm sorry, all citizens deserve X, Y, and Z, and then you you know, in the fine print, define what a citizen is. You know, it's a land-owning white male, basically. Uh, right. Although it didn't say white at the time, but that's really what it meant. Um, we are, are, excuse me, I look at that and say, these guys had good ideas that were ahead of their time. Maybe they realized it, maybe they didn't. Maybe, I, right. I feel like uh, a couple of these guys, um, Adams and Jefferson specifically, realized that and and they animated as much that things like slavery were just in uh i think i believe jefferson wrote that slavery was an abomination which is a weird thing for the largest one of the largest slave owners in the in the country to say but um almost like almost like einstein in the early 20th century trying to figure out subatomic particles without the tools to be able to actually look at them like CERN and things like that now and Fermilab and things like that. Mm -hmm. Uh, you know, so when we, when we re or like we're in the process of reorganizing our society, uh, based on, uh, the N out group dynamic, right. Which is kind of what we were trying to avoid in the first place. Again, it really, uh, we veered quite a quite a bit away from classical liberalism where you know the things that Martin Luther King Jr said for example like you judge a person by the content of their character you know what i mean that that's like if you look on the back of their baseball card there shouldn't be a picture on it there should just be stats what you've done right you know what i mean i couldn't agree more and i think we've got to start to articulate a narrative about who we are as a people because i think the people in the middle, in this vast middle of this country, have stopped doing that. And that's created a vacuum for the oppressed oppressor narrative. It's created a, a vacuum for the sort of great replacement theory. People who think that, you know, America is being taken over by, you know, alien, um, you know, and and I think that those are those are dangerous narratives and they're not true to who we are. I've been playing with the idea of patriotic pluralism and, um, you know, it tends the, the right tends to be patriotic, but maybe not as pluralistic as it should be. The left tends to be pluralistic, but not very patriotic. And in there, you can see that. And by the way, in some of the recent surveys that they've mm-hmm. been taking, um, and and I think we those are the like we are a country that has incredible ideals to stand up for, and we're a country that 
that is highly pluralistic. Now, that doesn't mean we should have open borders, by the way. It just means that we should understand that to a degree of diversity is a great strength, um, that there's untold energy in the uh, huddled masses of, of immigrants. I mean, you know, I live in an area where there's a lot of immigrants. I mean, I, you know, I know, I think I read that there, there's something like 8% of Montgomery County, Maryland, where I live out suburban Washington, DC, that are um, undocumented illegal immigrants. I have to tell you, I don't know who, when they come to my house to either cut the grass or uh, build a garden or, or a new patio, I don't know who's legal and who's not legal. I, I watch these guys and they work their asses off. And uh, I mean, um, and and again, I'm not saying that we should uh, have open borders or we should immediately legalize everybody. But I know that there's tremendous energy among immigrant populations. My kids go to school that have like 30 percent Asian Americans. These kids work their asses off mm -hmm. in school. Like they're the new Jews in a way. Like I by the time I grew up, you know, our parents were you know softening up. A little bit and that's fine i get it like you know um we knew how we to, to get into college or whatever we needed but these kids are working so hard and their parents have uh, have sacrificed so much i mean if they are patriotic let me tell you a little story i spoke in front of a, a, a chinese american group about two months ago and it's a mainstream group and the ceo of it did not want me to touch any of this sort of anti-woke stuff and he, you know he and i are friends and he thought i might do that and i and i i kept i kept quiet until somebody asked me a question where i couldn't resist i just i got up and i said is this a press a press narrative the right narrative for your kids is this what you think your kids should be brought up with i mean your kids aren't oppressed i'm not oppressed and there was an indian guy on the panel he's are you oppressed uh, i don't think you're oppressed you know, it doesn't mean that life is perfect and there's no discrimination, but isn't this country offering you all the freedoms you could ever ask for? I got a, like a standing ovation. I could not leave the hall afterwards. And the guy who brought me in there was shocked because he misread his own group. These are people, they, they love this country. And they come in here to make a difference and teach their kids how to be successful in it and um, with an incredible work ethic. So I think that's part of our heritage, too, and that we should honor that. And we should also... Just learn how to honor our own great ideals in this country. And I think we've we've lost that on both sides of the political spectrum in Miami. Yeah, for sure. hundred percent. I mean, it's <clears throat> it may be the biggest problem we have is that that nihilism. I mean, uh, rule 76, right? Play like a fucking champion. That's that's right. that's the most important thing you can do. And you can't do that if you can't operate in good faith and you can't operate in good faith if you're constantly being told that the game is rigged against you. You know what I mean? Even like as, as you said. Even when it is to some degree, it doesn't do you any good to uh, to to even acknowledge it. Frankly, much less make that part of your identity. You know what I mean? Like, oh, yeah. I I succeeded in spite of everything. Like, no, that's everybody succeeds in spite of everything. That's how life works, right. bud. Yeah, I have two sons who are both have ADD or ADHD. One of them is even dyslexic, and you know, it's it's a little frustrating sometimes when you're a parent and they're trying to medicate your kid and the kid really shouldn't be medicated or they're. Um, or and you know that they're really smart, but the system is sort of making them feel stupid because they can't do what everybody else can in the same way. But they're actually really creative and 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 and, and smart. And yet I, I say to them at the same time, look, I can't wave a magic wand and make the system accommodate you better because of your of your call it a disability if you mm -hmm. want or not. But but um, so you're going to, have, you know, and if you want to try to change the system, be my guest. Right. Like like we need people who try to change systems a bit as well. But you're going to have to work within the system because this is the one we have. 
and it's it's better than most, but it's highly imperfect. Hmm. So how are you going to make sure that you leverage your strengths in this environment? Um, and um, and you know that that's the message I've tried to get to them, and and it, you know in a system that didn't, wasn't always so kind to them when they were when they were kids and they couldn't pay attention in school and they were running around and the teacher you know created a highly sort of feminized environment and the school which made little boys feel like they have to behave like little girls and all that stuff. And um, and so, you know, but that I think that's got to be the narrative that we give our kids. Yeah. OK, work to make America live up to its highest ideals. But at the same time, you have to be able to succeed in the system we have. Sure. Yeah. I mean, it's the ultimate example of of teach a man to fish. Right. Which is interesting yep. because one of the more polarizing characters in American in the American public right now is Jordan Peterson, a man who is simply trying to empower people to take control of their own lives. Now, if his. If if that being controversial doesn't tell you something about where we're headed, then you're not paying enough it's attention. It's crazy. Yeah. Look, I don't always agree with Jordan Peterson, mm. but he's a fascinating guy to listen to. Mm -hmm. I mean, and, and he, he sort of riffs sometimes and you don't know where it's going to go. I'm not sure he even knows where it's going to go when he's when he's riffing on some topic. But it's going to be interesting to yeah. listen to. And it gives you food for thought. And he has this whole sort of personal responsibility emphasis that obviously we need in the society when so many kids are just failing. And, um, you know, and um, and so what I can't understand the invective and the disdain for this guy, uh, unceasing disdain for this guy. And it's just like, listen to him. I mean, like, why do you feel like you have to shut him down? Um, and they just they just can't. You know, and I, I feel that I guess, you know, as somebody who you know, has sort of embraced the role of heretic in my own community mm. in that way. It, it's, it, I, it's hard to like, I, it really it pisses me off because I'm just trying to express some ideas. Mm -hmm. I'm not telling you you have to believe anything, but you don't have to get all snarky and try to shut me down and tell me I'm a racist or a hate monger. It's just ridiculous. I've been doing, I've been doing quote unquote social justice work my entire life. Mm -hmm. And you're going to tell me that I'm a hate monger? You know, screw you. Like, yeah. that's what I want to say. I don't, of course, but that's what I want to say. Oh, well, maybe you should, because uh, it's a ridiculous thing to say to somebody. But, um, yeah, it's the idea of, uh, you know, reclaiming personal responsibility. We've seen it a lot of times throughout history, and those people, generally speaking, haven't been treated very well. Martin Luther is an example of that, right? Uh, you know, the idea that the state doesn't just control your religious beliefs. That was an unpopular idea at the time. Um, uh, at any rate, you've got to get going here. Uh, tell everybody where they can find you. And if you've got any closing thoughts for the audience, uh, go ahead with that. Yeah. So you can find me, you can reach out to me at uh, David at J I L V.org Jewish Institute for liberal values, uh, J I L V.org. Um, you can um, find me on Twitter at David L Bernstein. Um, and you can find me on Amazon if they put my freaking book back up. Um, and, uh, and, and, you know, just search on, uh, woke anti-Semitism and it should, if we get this straightened out, uh, be there. Um, and, uh, yeah, I'm happy to talk to people and, um, happy to work with other people in trying to restore this country's values of, of, of small L liberalism, classical liberal values, and a commitment to what makes this country great. 
Perfect. Thanks a lot, man. And we'll put the uh, I'll put the link to the book in the YouTube description here so people can actually find it since YouTube wants to be or I'm sorry, since Amazon wants to be weird about it. Um, Sounds great. Thank you. Yes, sir. I really appreciate your time today. Uh, appreciate all of you for watching and listening. This has been Citizen. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Corient. Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Corient has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of plan investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corient's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com.